Hello and welcome to the Drop Step podcast. I'm your host Jack Quantrill and today we're going to be looking into the NBA crystal ball. So it's a really simple format for this week's episode. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try and predict some All-NBA debutants. So players that haven't necessarily made the All-NBA before, we're going to forget that All-NBA has gone positionless and I'm going to give you a point guard, a shooting guard, a small forward, a power forward and a centre that I think have the best chance of cracking All-NBA for the first time. I'm going to state my case. I'm going to use stats and analyse some pre-All-Star break figures and post-All-Star break figures. And then, as well as at All-NBA picks, we're going to make some deep cuts. So another five players. Again, point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, centre. And we're going to try and pick five breakout guys. So they might not be on the radar at all. They might have been cutting their teeth last year, having a really good end to the season and perhaps be ready to change their reputation or announce themselves to a bigger fan base in the league. So that's the format for today's episode. We're going over 10 players, five who I think are going to make all NBA for the first time and five who you should have on your radar as breakout players. So we're essentially getting ahead of ourselves for the most improved race, which is often the hardest to predict. And I think we'll have a lot of fun going over some players that seem destined to take that next big step in the NBA season for 23-24. Just to note, I'm not going to have anyone that's coming off their rookie season. So I'm leaving out some obvious guys like a Shaden Sharp or a Jalen Williams for breakout guys. Because we've already seen that they're due a role change or they've had sustained performance that kind of got the media talking about them as a potential star in this league or a breakout guy. So aside from, I think, one guy in our breakout list, everyone is going to be at least starting their third season next year. So without further ado, let's have a look into the NBA crystal ball and we're going to start off with the All-NBA teams. So, our debut All-NBA point guard for the 23-24 season is the one, the only, Tyrese Halliburton. That might be a little bit crazy to you, but yes, I think the third-year guard who put up 20-10 and 10 on 40% from three is due a breakout year. Tyrese has already shone in Indiana. Rick Carlisle, a famous X's and O's ideologue who for years called play after play from the sidelines, has trusted Halliburton with his offence this year, allowing him to call plays, push the pace, and it's worked wonders. When he was on the court, the Pacers were a 500 team. When he was off, they were one of the worst teams in the league. So why is a player who's had that kind of season due for a breakout? Well, after the All-Star break, he took his game to a whole nother level. Post-All-Star, Halliburton was averaging 25.6 points per game, 12.8 assists on 69.8% true shooting. That is a seismic jump. In that period, he's improved his assist-to-turnover ratio and is looking like the most efficient offensive engine in the league, not called Nikola Jokic. 
Admittedly, this is a small sample size. He only played 12 games after the All-Star break, but I think there are clear factors that indicate that Halley is here to stay. Four of his 10 biggest scoring nights came in a four-game stretch, which included a buzzer beater to seal a win against the Bulls, a monumental shooting performance against the 76ers, and a 29-19 performance against the Rockets for good measure. You might suggest that he's just on a heater. Tie shot well post-All-Star, but it's in line with what he's done all season. He's consistently averaged 40% on seven attempts a game from three this year. But the real change that we observed came in his driving game. Post-All-Star, Halliburton registered three games with 10 free throw attempts or more for the first time in his career. Halliburton featured on the Dunkerspot podcast recently and spoke about how the coverages he's seen have evolved through the season. Uh, he's quoted as saying, I don't see drop too much anymore. I've been shooting pretty well from three, so teams aren't as comfortable going under screens. And I think this and added confidence has boosted Ty's driving game. And I expect it to stay. He's getting more and more comfortable in switch situations, attacking mismatches, which is leading to deeper paint touches and in turn contact which has got the 88% for the year free throw shooter to the line 6.8 times per game. And that's the 16th best in the league. In contrast, pre-All-Star break, he ranked 94th. So for me, the breakout is coming. With another talented draft pick to add this Thursday at number seven, cap space to use and progression from the likes of Matherin, Nemhard, Neesmith, I expect the Pacers to sustain a play-in run for the entirety of the year and Halliburton will be at the heart of that. I genuinely expect a jar, Shea-type glow-up and the media attention will go with it. So, for that reason, we've got Tyrese Halliburton as the captain at point guard of our All-NBA, going-to-make-All-NBA team. Moving on to shooting guard... And it's a guy that's been in the league a little longer than Halliburton. But due to a change in circumstance, and I think we saw a real uplift in his production already in the latter half of the season. But at shooting guard, I've gone for Mikel Bridges. This is another guy who was on an absolute tear after the All-Star break. And more importantly, since the KD trade, where Mikel swapped Sonny Phoenix for the full Brooklyn Bridges experience. Bridges was an all-defence first-team player in 21-22, a Defensive Player of the Year finalist as well. We've known for a while that Bridges was a great two-way player, able to lock it down on the perimeter, while also having complementary offensive skills like catch-and-shoot capability and some flair when attacking a closeout. But after arriving at the Barclays Centre, Bridges has shown legit two-way star potential. The traditional counting stats are mind-boggling. He's jumped from 17.6 points per game in a Suns jersey to 26.2 points per game as a net. That's been made up of five more field goal attempts per game, a jump in his free throws from 3.1 to 6.6 per game, and two more threes. So an absolute skyrocket. All of this has been achieved on sustained efficiency from his Phoenix days. In fact, it's gotten better. 
Bridges closed out the season for Brooklyn at 60% true shooting, which is a bump from the league average 57% he was putting up for the Suns. So for me, all NBA is in sight. While the numbers have really taken a turn for the better and he's showing legit scoring potential at a really high level, I don't necessarily think he's best served as a first option. He looks like an ideal release valve to me. An empowered scorer with a silky jump shot in catch and shoot and dribble pull up situations. He never looks rushed for Brooklyn, but my only concern is the playmaking. While the turnovers are low at 1.8 for a guy whose usage was actually at 30.3% in Brooklyn, the assists simply aren't there. He's racking up 2.7 assists per game for the Nets, which is actually a drop in comparison to what he was doing for Phoenix. Hopefully, next year, with a full off-season to integrate into the team, a system built around him to leverage that newfound scoring threat to make the game easier for his teammates, we see those assist numbers jump. Earlier in the year, Nick Claxton was getting the easiest buckets in the league as defences shifted over to stop KD and Kyrie, but that hasn't been the case with Bridges as the number one option. I worry that while he's putting up big efficiency numbers, that usage combined with a lack of playmaking for others could lead to a Dantley-like number one stint for Bridges in Brooklyn. All that being said, of the players that qualify at the shooting guard, I see him having the best chance at making his maiden appearance on an All-NBA team. Yes, that's ahead of Ant, partly because I see him set up better for it in Brooklyn. It's an offensive blank canvas over there, and partly because he's the kind of guy that the analytics community will get behind and media will turn its attention to. I think we even saw it towards the end of last season where there was a lot of love that Brooklyn Bridges' hype train had officially taken off. And even if some of that was dampened in their first round sweep to Philadelphia I think that the media hype and the analytics hype is going to return for 23-24 and even if Bridges's defensive prowess takes a little bit of a step back with the offensive burden we all know he's capable of some of the best forward and wing defense in the NBA and I think if he puts it together next year other players are going to have a really hard time beating his case for third, second team, All-NBA. The other thing that really bodes well for Bridges is that he is the league's absolute Iron Man. Do you know how many games he played last year during the regular season? 83. Yes, that's right. In the era of load management, Mikhail somehow managed to play an extra game during the NBA regular season and he's never missed a game in his career. I think with the new stipulations for All-NBA, this should make him an even clearer favourite for a first-time All-NBA berth. So that's our backcourt for our maiden NBA team. And the first player in the forward position is probably the player that I feel strongest about. And that is the New Orleans Pelicans 2016 number two overall pick, Brandon Ingram. I'm going to start this segment by just saying that Ingram is my favourite player on this list. Um, when you tune in to watch him, he's looking more and more like a basketball master, a black belt, a samurai. In the post-All-Star stint, where he finally returned to full health, 
I genuinely think that he looked like one of the 20 best players in the league. After that All-Star break, he put up a LeBron-like 27, 6 and 7. And if that doesn't convince you that he's going to make an All-NBA jump, I don't know what will. Uh, but on top of the traditional counting stats that were really, really impressive for him, I think that with Zion out and perhaps Zion out for good, if you're believing some of the reports and rumours in the lead up to the NBA draft, Ingram is going to be fully empowered to put his playmaking utility on show. Let me talk a little bit about what I mean. So post All-Star break, he was putting up seven assists per game, which is fantastic. But if you reduce that sample size to the last 15 of the season, where the Pelicans went 10 and 5, Ingram's assists jumped to 8.1 a game. That's a figure that's matched by the likes of Luca and Chris Paul. So if Ingram can keep that up, I really think the sky is the limit. What really stands out to me about his playmaking is that he can do it on multiple levels. You know, we sometimes hear about three-level scorers, the guys that can get to the cup, hit from the mid-range and from outside of the arc. I think that Ingram is like that as a playmaker. He's complete. So in the pick and roll, like a lot of the premier offensive talents in the league, he draws attention through a scoring threat. If the roller is being tagged by the weak side help, he's really comfortable making that skip pass out to the corner. And he can make pocket passes as well, dump-offs through tight windows to his rolling centre. All of these deliveries can come with either hand, and he throws proper no-look passes as well. Not the Kuzma-style, look, look, pass, look away, no-looks. That's in the pick and roll. What I'd do if I were Willie Green, and what I think he did quite a lot earlier in the season, is park him at the elbows, maybe let him dribble into the mid-range, leveraging that uncontestable mid-range pull-up, and work into handoff actions a little bit more, spice up the offensive sets. New Orleans, for the moment, has Zion, who is an incredible driving threat, and Trey Murphy as well, who was a really close breakout candidate for the other list that we're going to get to, but I kind of think he's already broken out. But both of those guys are best driving when they get the ball on the move. CJ and Trey can go either way in handoff situations, and BI has the capability to pop as well as trail for a floater opportunity. And even Herb, Najee and Dyson have really great cutting instincts. Zion is the most offensively gifted player on the Pelicans, but... I think they unlock everyone if they play through Ingram in a similar way to how Sacramento did with Sabonis and how Miami did with Bam. And that's just the playmaking. Shooting-wise, he shot 39% this year consistently from behind the arc. He rounded out the season with seven free throws a game and his mid-range percentage is creeping up towards that DeMar level of efficiency. In clutch situations, he isn't phased. It must be nice when you just have your mid-range pull-up to get to whenever you want. Ingram just isn't rushed. You can tell he loves the game, and considering his age, I think he's just due to get better and better. If you're in the business of buying fake NBA player stock on the NBA player stock market, to me, this is the guy you invest in. Anthony Edwards was a force of nature against Denver in the first round of the playoffs this year. And could well have been a contestant, as we've already mentioned, for a first-time All-NBA slot ahead of an Ingram or Bridges. But he had some real growing pains as a number one guy in the back half of the season. 
Post All-Star, he was good for 23 a game on 44% field goal, getting to the line 4.8 times a game and knocking down 67.8% of his looks from the charity stripe. He was putting up 4.2 assists with three turnovers. My point being, compare the hype of Ant, which is real, he should be held in the regard that he's held in now, and then compare the love that B.I. gets. He's a player that, in my mind, is destined for the very top, and if he has a fully healthy season, and the Pels don't have one of their signature mid-season slumps, or get off to an absolutely horrible start, I fully expect Ingram to announce himself to the league as one of the best and most skilled forwards. Just look around, the guys that have occupied these all-NBA forward positions for a good part of a decade now, they're all ageing out, you know, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, KD, LeBron, we've seen them all struggle with injuries this year and in the past and with the new 65 games played stipulations I just think that the time is now for Ingram to not only make a first All-NBA appearance but really cement himself as one of the best forwards in the game. He's going to be up against the likes of Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown but those two guys don't have the same sort of playmaking skill yet and ultimately when it comes down to offense it's really simple it's leveraging your scoring threat against your playmaking capability it's making sure that you can score the ball in clutch situations you can get to your spots but you're also diming up your teammates and the whole offense is humming and while there might be slightly more talented players, like I think Jason Tatum is definitely a better one-on-one player than a Brandon Ingram, there isn't a single young forward in the NBA that has that same release valve that B.I. does. So fully expect to see him in and around the 20s as one of the best players in the league, let alone make an All-NBA. I really think that this is the guy that's going to make the biggest stride, not necessarily in terms of how they're playing, but in terms of how the media is perceiving them. It is going to be Brandon Ingram time one way or another next year. So, I think I've started off with three pretty strong cases. It's going to be hard to deny that Tyrese Halliburton has a good chance at point guard. Mikael Bridges is going to have some All-NBA equity and Brandon Ingram had such a phenomenal end to the season. If he carries that over, he's going to be putting up LeBron James numbers so you don't just want to listen to sure things at the power forward position it's my biggest reach on any list I'm gonna say that Scotty Barnes has a chance at making all NBA for the first time next year now if anything Scotty dipped in production from year one to year two certainly in the first half of the year And it can be hard to shake that sort of unfavourable perception in the NBA. So maybe it's going to take another season to re-establish himself as one of the top young prospects at the table. But Scotty is in our power forward position because it's a thin position in terms of breakout candidates. No pun intended, but there's a massive elephant in the room in the shape of Zion Williamson at that spot. But at this point, he's been talked about to death and we can't really trust him to be healthy until, well, he's healthy and he shows us that he can play a full season or somewhere near there. So for me, Scotty is my guy. I'm taking him ahead of Evan Mobley, who I also could have had at the centre position. I just don't think that he's ready to make that offensive leap that you have to to get all NBA credit. So he's my guy.
I think he's set for a third year leap. And I think at the end of the season, we saw some really positive progression in his game. The stats didn't majorly change, but Scotty benefited from playing with Jakob Ertl as much as any other Raptor on the roster did. And despite a clunky fit next to fellow wing forwards like Pascal and OG, he saw a jump in his plus minus from 1.7 to 3.9. So even with concerns about how the Raptors played, when he was on the court, they were playing winning basketball this year. My main reasons for expecting a leap from Scotty is what we're hearing from the Raptors be. Toronto finally ended their search for a new head coach, appointing former Memphis and Phoenix assistant Darko Ryakovich. Darko is renowned as a creative X's and O's guy on each end of the court, but particularly offensively. In seasons where he was lead assistant with the Suns and the Grizzlies, they ran the least amount of isolation of anyone in the NBA. And I think that's going to suit Scotty down to the ground. So, particularly in the first half of the season, Barnes was getting plenty of isolation opportunity. He was either posting up at the elbow, attempting to make fallaways from 16 feet, or just pounding the rock at the top of the key, trying to break his man down and create for himself. And... While many might hope that that's what Scotty is capable of when he hits his prime, particularly if you're buying into comparisons to Kawhi that quite frankly have only come about because of Leonard's affiliations with the city, it's not how he's best used now. Scotty is the unique kind of guy who can make his teammates better on both ends of the floor. Defensively, that wingspan and heft enables him to be switchable and play the passing lanes. That gets his team out in transition where Barnes thrives and offensively he's a really unselfish player, constantly trying to dime up his teammates. And I think with Darko at the helm, Scotty's going to have different questions asked of him. Yes, he can initiate in the pick and roll, but also what does he look like coming out of handoff actions, playmaking on the short roll, screening for guards, diving to the rim, cutting to negate the defensive impact of sagging off of him as a spot up guy. Barnes is just a sponge with a ton of tools and from what I understand the franchise views him as their offensive engine of the future and I think we can expect to see an offense that suits Barnes more and perhaps teammates that suit him more as well. So if Pascal is moved that allows Scotty to play the four with OG a good shooter at the three whoever the Raptors draft at 14 and potentially Fred at the point but they haven't had shooting on the roster while Barnes has been in Toronto so hopefully Masai gets a chance to sort of reshape the players that they evaluate and the players that they look to bring in and just open up the court a little bit for Barnes because fielding literally two shooters in Fred and Gary Trent and you know maybe OG he he hits a good number of his threes like we said at the top but he's not someone that defenses are glued to teams will still sag off of him so I think that if the team is a little bit more oriented towards Scotty having the ball in his hands and just being involved in more actions, then he is going to progress offensively. And ultimately, Barnes plays the game the right way at both ends of the court, something I think we'll see more valued this year with Jokic's success in the playoffs. I think with the added offensive burden, we could see his assists jump to six, seven a game. And I think his points will come easier in a motion offense, either increasing efficiency or volume. And the other thing to note is that Scotty is a good free throw shooter. 
Maybe it won't happen this year, but I fully expect his 77% conversion rate from the stripe to translate into better shooting, whether that's from behind the arc or particularly inside. We know he's got touch. So it's more of a feeling than a statistical case, but if, like me, you read the works of Samson Falk or Eric Kareen, you just can't help but feel that Barnes is going right to the top. And for that reason, he is my long shot all-NBA power forward shout. And I hope, I really hope that I'm right and I don't look like a clown because I love Evan Mobley. I really do. And I'm kind of about to go at him a little bit more in our centre section because the guy that I've got pegged for all-NBA there perhaps draws some comparisons to Mobley. But I think that Barnes is going to be that guy going forward. And anyway, let's close out the All-NBA team with our centre. And this is a guy that was drafted in 2018. You might think it's a reach. I don't. I've got Jaron Jackson Jr. as our centre for our debut All-NBA team. Grizzlies Twitter isn't admittedly as rowdy as, say, Warriors, Heat, Blazers. Oh, God. Rockets Twitter is what really gets me. But I've seen some anger that the national media is hailing Evan as the second coming of Tim Duncan, particularly Bill Simmons and Zach Lowe, while Jaron, only 13 months his senior, is arguably looking like the next great American big man. The Defensive Player of the Year, that's, that's right, Defensive Player of the Year, made his all-star debut this year, and I think he'll have a case for being the third, fourth best big in the league, and thus making All-NBA. Why do I think that? Well... Pre-All-Star, Jackson was at 16.9 points per game. Pre-All-Star, Jar was scoring 27 a game. And Jaron was fourth for usage on the team at 22%, which I believe is actually below league average. If you look at his post-All-Star numbers, he's jumping up to 21.5 per game on 26% usage, all while being more efficient. So his true shooting goes from 60 to 62%. So Already in that pre-to-post All-Star break, you see that Jaron is more value defensively and they're trying to get him more touches. And in turn, his production is going up and that's all happening while he's being more efficient. But if you take that sample down to the final 13 games of the season where we don't see as much of Jar, I believe that he only plays eight games. Jackson's usage jumps up to 29.8%. And he scores 25.5 per game on 63% true shooting. The extra production from pre-All-Star to the last 13 games of the season is coming from the free throw line where he jumps from 4.1 attempts to 6.4 and 2 point opportunities skyrocket. And he's creating those for himself. He's not like a traditional big man like... I don't want to say an Embiid because he's phenomenal at creating at the elbow or at the nail, but, you know... Some great scoring big men of our time think Amari Stoudemire needed to have the ball put in their hands in the right position to cause damage. But what you see when you watch Jaron is that he's got some creation off the bounce. And if you listen to the mismatch with Kevin O'Connor and Chris Ferdin, you might think the comparisons are ridiculous, but they were saying they could see little shades of Giannis in that self-creation game for a guy that's six foot eleven, has a massive wingspan, and as we know can jump out of the gym. I didn't quite see the second coming of the Greek freak, but I thought that some of Jaron's movements were quite similar to what we saw Bam Adebayo do in the finals, where 
he sprinted ahead of Jokic on a defensive rebound and was able to get to his shot, whether that be the mid-range or right to the rim. And I think that Jackson is going to be capable of doing that over the next few seasons. But what really jumped off the tape is how Jackson is looking far more comfortable leveraging his physicality in mismatch situations. He went for a career-high 37 against the Houston Rockets in the closing stages of the season. And yes, that is the Houston Rockets, I know. But time and time again, he punished smaller defenders in the posts. He was backing them down and enjoying the benefits of playing on a spaced-out team. You see, throughout his career, Jackson has had to play with big physical centres, partly because of his rebounding efficiencies. But they really stifled the spacing of the Grizzlies' offence. And previously, Jaron's best offensive seasons were when he'd hit a high percentage of his threes. But I think that what we'll see is, without Jar to create a perimeter advantage, the Grizzlies are going to have to lean on spacing, which could in turn open up the court for Triple J. As for the fouling issues, they're still there. He played 28.4 minutes per game this season and averaged 3.6 personal fouls. In the playoffs, however, he played 37 minutes a game against the Lakers and committed four fouls a game. So... I think this is a guy that will thrive with the responsibility thrust upon him early in the season. And as he did in the playoffs, I think he's going to be able to keep himself on the court. Jar might be coming back to the Grizz, not as the saviour after over a quarter of the season without their star player, but as a terrifying addition to a young core that I expect to be over 500 when Morant suits back up. The point being, this year, Jaron showed that he's a world-class defensive player, at the four or the five. Anyone who's getting team officials in trouble for their stocks numbers had to be doing something crazy. What I think we'll see next season, particularly early on with Jar out for that 25-game stretch, is a real shift in the perception of his offensive skills. The Grizz are going to rely on Triple J on both ends of the court to start the season and I think that's going to garner him a lot of public attention and in turn lead to him making his debut appearance on an All-NBA list. And just to say I'm so high on JJJ, I think that he's due to have an incredible career. There's no one quite like him in the league at the moment and I'm just really excited to see how he thrives under the pressure that he's going to have for 23-24. But that is our All-NBA, going to make All-NBA for the first time team. So we've got Tyrese at the point, Mikhail at shooting guard, Brandon Ingram at small forward, Scotty Barnes at reach at power forward, and Jaron Jackson Jr. at the centre. So now on to our second team, and these are the deep cuts. This is breakout guys who I think could potentially just shift their perception, how they're regarded around the league. And maybe that started to happen in the closing stages of last season. But it's going to be announced during 23-24. And the first player I think is really going to put it all together is Chicago Bulls point guard, Kobe White. After the All-Star break, Kobe really asserted himself as the Bulls' sixth man. He played 26 minutes per game and the team really popped when he took to the court alongside fellow lottery pick Patrick Williams, a.k.a. The Port. Together, they were part of a group that was plus 5.6 per 100 possessions and 
their injection of shooting elevated that ball's offense to a 124.2 offensive rating. Now, some of that is going to come against bench units or lesser opposition, and it's a small sample size, but I think it goes to show that the two perhaps disappointing lottery picks that the Bulls have made over the last few years were really starting to turn it round for Billy Donovan's team last year. So digging into Kobe's game, what really pops is that the turnovers have dropped in the post-All-Star stretch. He's rocking a 3.12 assist to turnover ratio, by far the best mark of his career. His usage is only at 17.4%, which is really low, but that suggests to me that White has found his niche when it comes to within the ball system. Sometimes it's hard for a lottery pick to eschew the role ascribed to him in the pre-draft process, and when it looked like Kobe wasn't going to be the Gilbert Arenas comparison, yes, that's what I found in his NBADraft.net scouting report, there tends to be an expectation that these guys will burn out of the league. 12 months ago, you could have seen White filling it up overseas, maybe next to Dwight in Taiwan, and his IM projection would have been a Lou Williams-style sixth man, but he's really worked at his game, and I think he's become a starting-level complementary guard in the league. Without primary responsibility, White is a really valuable spacer off the ball. He can shoot off of the catch, off of movement, and can really be that archetypal spark plug catching fire from three on lucky nights or nights where he's dialed in but it's not all about that as previously mentioned white's putting up four and a half assists per game post all-star on 17.9 percent usage he's become a willing extra passer a connective piece on the perimeter for the balls who greases the wheels of what can really be an isocentric offense White has put in the work on the other end of the floor too. According to NBA.com's play type data, White is allowing 0.5 points per possession defending in isolation, which is about 47th percentile in the league, so halfway, neither good nor bad. And 0.89 points per possession guarding pick and roll ball handlers. Neither is elite by any means, but both are marked improvements from, say, last season, where he allowed 1.32 points per possession in isolation, which was third percentile in the league. Absolutely horrible. And 0.99 points per possession when defending pick-and-roll ball handlers, which was 20th percentile in the league. So, again, really not great. So, what we've saw over the last 12 months is... White accepts a smaller role, that usage is at an all-time low, but he's been really productive and he's been part of winning units whenever he's taken to the floor, particularly post-All-Star break when the Bulls could instill a little bit more ball pressure with the additions of Pat Beverly and obviously Alex Caruso still being there and he fit into a defensive system and really, as we said, greased the wheels on that offence and they were really, really good when he took to the court. So, Next year, he's not going to be an All-NBA guy. Kobe Whites don't win Most Improved anymore. They probably should. I think he's going to take that leap, at least in the eyes of the media. But just look out for what I think is going to be a really useful point guard slash combo guard. He's more of a combo guard now, who is going to be part of a next generation of role players. These low usage guys with high skill, good shooting capability that can play make, that can attack a closeout, all while staying competent on the other end of the floor. So 
Kobe White is our point guard. And if Kobe is just going to be average on defense, then our shooting guard is a guy that I think is going to thrive defensively in the NBA. And that is Jaden Springer. So Nick Nurse likes defense. Nick Nurse, meet your next new favorite guard. Springer is still 20 years old and he was designed in a lab to play under Nick Nurse. The six foot four point guard with a six foot eight wingspan was the G League Finals MVP last year. He was drafted 38th in 2021 and Springer has progressed significantly given a ton of G League reps and averaged 19 points per game for the Delaware Bluecoats last year and took home the G League steals title with two and a half per game. That's a lot of numbers, but essentially Springer was incredibly productive for that G League team on both ends of the court. And I really think that that's something that is going to translate to the NBA. He showed at a lower level that he can create for himself and he could be the type of role player that blossoms under a coach that values effort and appreciation as much as Nurse. While his role might not be the same for the 76ers, considering their talent, he's a high field player who can knock down catch and shoot threes, cut intelligently and get his team in transition, given his defensive activity. It's slightly difficult at the moment to see his spot in the rotation, given that the Sixers have James presumably coming back, Maxi and Melton, but there's been whispers of DeAnthony moving on, and if Harden returns to Houston, that would give Philadelphia the chance to reinvent their identity, be able to play faster and be more resolute on the defensive end if with Maxi and Melton starting and Springer as their sixth man guard. Doc praised him enormously in the back half of the season. 76ers Twitter is in love with Jaden Springer. He's more untradeable than James Harden to them. Expect to see Jaden announce himself in his first proper NBA year after some G League reps and just enjoy watching him because he's a really enjoyable player to watch. So he's our shooting guard. Um, moving on to the small forward position, we've got Peyton Watson. Deep cut, super deep cut. Peyton was selected 30th in the 2022 draft last year and he played a whopping eight minutes per game in his debut season for the Nuggets. Just screams breakout guy, right? But I think the six foot eight, 20 year old is about to fly up the Nuggets rotation next year and get some real NBA reps. So in a limited sample size, Watson showed real improvement through his first season. He played three minutes a game pre-All-Star break, only featuring eight times and even spent some time in the G League. But post-All-Star break, Watson featured in 11 of the Nuggets' 20 remaining games, playing 13 and a half minutes a game. In that playing time, he scored five points a night, grabbed 2.6 rebounds and put up an assist, all while making 41% of his threes. Scale that up for 13.6 points per 36 minutes and a plus minus of only minus 1.7 that puts him in the company of Jalen Williams, Mark Williams, O'Shea Arbaji and Paolo Banquero. Um, while I'm not saying that he's going to be as good as Paolo or Jalen it does show that he's playable and all of those minutes were in bench units. Watson didn't share the floor at all with the ultimate plus minus guy in Jokic post all-star break. Lastly, his G League numbers show a guy that's able to get his own offensively when empowered in a bigger role. 
In seven games in the G League last year, Watson averaged 22 points per game, getting to the line five times a game and shooting 78% from the charity stripe. He only shot 45% from the field, but Watson was probably in that too good for the G League, not quite ready for the NBA stage last year. When you factor in his development with roster issues that the Nuggets might face, Bruce Brown likely leaving in free agency, Jeff Green being a year older, I think we could see Watson jumping to be in Denver's seventh man. They've got their championship starting five, but like we said, Brown might be off. And I think that Braun, who showed out in the finals, and Watson, who they traded into the draft to get last year, could really be part of a youth movement in Denver. But I think it's pretty clear that the Nuggets have a long-term plan. They know they have the best starting five in the league. They know they won't be able to keep free agents who overperform their contracts like Bruce Brown last year. So they're assembling a cast of young role players. Braun, Watson, Najee, Kamagate, whoever they pick up at 40th this year to all slot in next to the big Serbian, be sturdy on defence and provide cost-effective depth while they're on their rookie scale contracts. So look out for Watson as one of the more fun sophomores to keep track of next year. Remember, he was a five-star recruit, ranked 12th in his high school class. Given the situation he finds himself in, next to the best teammate in the league, with a well-established system and an increasing willingness to give young guys a chance, Watson is one of my long-term bets for being a significant player in this league, perhaps from someone that didn't have the showiest debut NBA season. So he is our small forward. And... Jump into the power forward is a guy that's been in the league a little longer than Watson, and that's Jalen Johnson of the Atlanta Hawks. We only saw a limited sample size, but Jalen looks to be a favourite of Quinn Snyder already. The Duke grad saw his minutes rise from 5.5 in his debut season with the Hawks to 15 last year, but Schneider was giving him 18 minutes a game post All-Star break. There are a few more reasons I'm expecting a breakout year for Jalen. First and foremost, an entire off-season for Snyder to work with the team. Quinn is a creative coach. We saw him utilise a five-out system in Utah with the likes of Joe Ingles and Bojan Bogdanovic playing at the three and four positions. I think he's realised there's a real need for mobility and athleticism to cover up for Trey on the defensive end. Johnson is their best option at the four spot. I think he's got the potential to play a kind of Aaron Gordon role next to a Kongwu in the front court, being switchable, crashing the boards, adding backline rim protection and getting out in transition. Jalen is one of those players who had a late growth spurt, so in his youth he was a point guard. One of the underrated facets of Aaron Gordon's game is passing. A lot of it's credited to Jokic, but... You watch the Nuggets and you see that Gordon is a really capable entry passer. He spots cuts and often makes the extra pass for a better shot. Passing up a good one for a great one. I think that Johnson has the ability to develop on that end too. With his instincts, he's at least capable of slipping his teammates in on the break and maintaining an advantage when Trey draws two with his gravity in pick and roll. The last reason I expect Jalen to have a breakout year is looking at the state of the Hawks cap sheet. They have three wing forwards on contracts totaling $64 million, fully guaranteed for the next two seasons. They're John Collins, DeAndre Hunter and Bojan Bogdanovic. 
Financially, it doesn't make sense to have all three of those guys under contract considering their responsibilities with their team and factoring in that they have cheaper, younger options waiting in the wings. See what I did there? One way or another, Collins is gone and I think either Hunter or Bay are traded mid-season. Bay's contract is up at the end of 23-24. I think this is finally the season where we see John Collins traded and with that, a starting spot opens up in the team. Johnson is an ideal four to play when the Hawks are running three guard lineups with Trey, DeJounte and Bojan. And if he can just be passable from three, which we've seen in short spurts, I think he can be really, really impactful. So like we said, he's springy, he's 6'10", he's versatile defensively, he has some untapped passing instincts. And Snyder showed at the end of the season that he's willing to give him a chance. If you watch that Hawks heat playing game, he jumped off the screen with the hell that he was giving the heat on the boards and getting out in transition. And I think given a full off season to be creative with the playbook, perhaps factoring in that you're not going to have the same spacing that you had with the Utah Jazz if you're Quinn Snyder, Jalen Johnson is going to be really, really impactful for the Hawks. And I hope so, because otherwise that franchise is heading for issues. They need one of AJ Griffin or Jalen to pop. So Let's see what happens, but Jalen is my breakout guy at the power forward spot, which means that we've only got one position left. That's the centre position, and here we're going for a guy that was drafted in 2017, and it's fair to say he might be overshadowed by a centre prospect that is coming into the team anyway. But for our centre breakout guy, we've got Zach Collins, currently a San Antonio Spur. So... Post-All-Star, Collins was putting up 16.4 points per game, 7.8 rebounds, 3.5 assists, a steal and a block a game for good measure. Since the Jakobertl trade, basically, Collins blossomed into a starting level stretch 5 for the Spurs. And I'm wagering that next year, the 10th pick in the 2017 draft makes good on his promise and solidifies himself as a top 15 centre in the league. Watching Collins, you see that he's an orchestrator from the elbow and the top of the key. Like Sacramento, Greg Popovich is running offence through his big man, who picks out cutters with ease. He's capable of diming up cutters from the elbow and spotting shooters on the perimeter. The Spurs look set to make a jump up the standings next year, with the NBA's French heir apparent about to suit up for them once he's picked number one on Thursday. But... With Wemby as a four, I think we'll see one of the stronger and more complementary young backcourts in the league take shape in San Antonio. Collins' ability to shoot is going to allow him and Wemby to take turns occupying the post as both have skills to offer on the perimeter. Collins shot 37% from deep last year and he can hit mid-rangers too. Long term, I'm as excited as anyone about Jeremy Sohan. Pairing up with Victor Wembanyama in the Spurs front court for one of the funkiest, longest, most switchable, athletic front courts we've ever seen in the NBA. But don't count out Collins as a player who's going to be on your radar next year. He's over the injury issues and he's a really well-rounded offensive player. We've spoken about the spacing and the passing instincts, but Collins can play in the post too. He's capable of finishing with either hand, he's patient, and he has a lovely spin move to counter aggressive post-defence. 
The athleticism isn't sky high and the Spurs did have a woeful defensive record in the league this year. But that improved with times for Collins too. Pre-All-Star, often playing behind Jakob Pertl, in 21 minutes per game, the Spurs were putting up a 117.9 defensive rating with Collins on the court. Post-trade, with a bump in his minutes up to 28.4 per game, that defensive rating was down to 112.5. If it were a team making that jump, that would be equivalent of going from 27th to 8th in the standings. So, he's coming off half a season of playing a bigger role and improving on the defensive end. I wouldn't be surprised if Collins gets media buzz this year as the spotlight falls on San Antonio once more. He's a really well-rounded big and maybe his future doesn't lie in San Antonio, but I think he's going to show out this year. The Spurs aren't going to want to put a lot of miles on Wemby as he's still trying to fill out. He's not going to be the guy they want defending Joel Embiid in the post or Jokic. He's not going to get banged about on a night-to-night basis. So I think we're going to see the Collins-Wembanyana front court for the first season of the Frenchman's NBA tenure. And in turn, I think that means that Collins is really going to announce himself to the league and probably earn himself a trade somewhere at the end of the season when Wemby is ready to play the starting five all time. But for now, just be excited, not just about Victor Wembanyana, not just about Malachi Branham, Devin Vassell, Keldon Johnson, Jeremy Sohan, all the young prospects that the Spurs have got. Just remember Zach Collins because I think he's going to have a breakout year this year. So that finishes up our episode. We've gone through our two teams. We've got our all-NBA team with Halliburton, Bridges, Ingram, Barnes and Triple J. And then we've got our breakout team of Kobe White, Jaden Springer, Peyton Watson, Jalen Johnson and Zach Collins. There are two teams and I really want to hear from you guys. What do you think? Have I completely misjudged any of these guys? Are there any glaring omissions? I was really close to putting in the likes of Jaden McDaniels and Trey Murphy III, but I think that they're sort of in between these two categories. They've kind of broken out and I'm not sure if they're ready for all NBA. I was tossing up actually putting Jaden McDaniels in the power forward all NBA spot, but I thought that would just cause all hell to break loose if I ever met a Minnesota Timberwolves fan in the street. So I really hope you enjoyed the episode. We went a little bit more stat heavy this time. I hope that you guys like that more analytical side and looking at the pre-All-Star numbers with the post-All-Star numbers. I want to hear who you guys think are going to make All-NBA for the first time. Share with your friends, see what they think. But that's been the fourth episode of the Drop Step podcast. I was your host, Jack Quantrill. I hope you enjoyed listening and tune in next time for another episode of The Drop Step.